0: pray amen amen the goal this morning is to have an overview or a survey of the book of matthew Uh, That's our goal this morning. Next week we'll be looking at, God willing, the prophecies that lead up to Jesus Christ and lead up to His birth and His coming to earth. After that we'll be looking at Matthew one twenty one and just how Jesus is. He's the Savior of the world and why do we need saving? Why does the world need saving? Why is He the Savior? So our goal before we go through the book of Matthew, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, is to have an overview of it all. So that as we go through it, we have an understanding of what's happening. There's a danger in Bible study that if you study a verse so in depth, you can lose the full picture and point and reason why it's there. And you could start your own Bible study that is a great Bible study, but it may not be in the context or truly verse by verse or chapter by chapter. So the book of Matthew, it's the first book in the New Testament. Anyone here, Matthew was the first book that you read when you were a new believer? Anybody here, right? A handful of you, more than the 9 a.m. And as you begin reading the book of Matthew, that's my encouragement. Lots of people say, hey, start in Genesis. Genesis is great. But once you start hitting genealogy after genealogy after genealogy, for a new believer, it can get difficult when they're trying to get in their devotionals. Lord, what are you trying to reveal to me today? How do I pronounce this name? What's going on here, right? So... Matthew's a good way. And in Matthew, verse 1 through 17, you're sort of hit with that hurdle right away, and you're given the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, the first of these four Gospels, that word gospel literally means good news. And we're proclaiming the good news of who Jesus Christ was, and is, and is to come. And the point of the Gospels is to reveal to us the life, work, ministry, and purpose of Jesus Christ here on earth those 33 years. And instead of being given one long Gospel giving us all the details and intricacies of the life of Jesus... Instead, God would have it fit that we have four different Gospels that are written by four different authors and that are tailored to four different audiences, all glorifying Jesus and giving us different views, different lenses, and different aspects of Jesus Christ that I'm sure many of us here, we have a different Gospel that resonates with our heart more than with another. You could think of a beautiful piece of music being sung by one person or by one instrument versus a quartet of four different instruments being blended perfectly together, balancing the music, trading the pieces, and revealing this beautiful piece of music all together. We could also think of the four parts of a frame, right? Unless you wives made your husband build a hexagon for a a frame, right? But usually frames, they have four pieces And those four pieces hold and portray a beautiful picture inside. For you movie buffs, you could think of a movie with four different camera angles covering the different people, the different reactions, the different walks of life, the different backstories, and also emphasizing the different parts of the same story. The book of Matthew has 28 chapters. And 1,071 verses, depending which Bible version you have, which is about 13% of the New Testament. So it is. It's a big chunk of the New Testament. And the book of Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. Again, our faith, its heritage is in Jewish roots. Our Lord, our Savior, He decided to come as a Jewish man. And Matthew is written to a Jewish audience, and it's a perfect bridge from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Matthew is showing that Jesus is the prophesied King of Israel. And that's really getting ahead of myself. The theme of the book of Matthew is that Jesus is the King. He's the king. He's a lord of lords. He's the king of kings, not only for the Jews and the land of Israel, but for all of humanity. Every human that's ever lived, our king is Jesus, and he'll continue to rule and reign forever. That's why Matthew starts off in verse 1 this genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he follows the genealogy of his adoptive father, Joseph, and how it ties him to the king lineage of the Jews and of Israel. His name here, right, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And maybe when you first got saved, you thought, right, first name Jesus, last name Christ, right? When you're trying to refer to him in prayer and not get trouble, you say, Mr. Christ, I please ask that you give me something, right? Something like that. But it's not his last name. Instead, it's a title attached to his name. Other versions put verse 1 as Jesus the Messiah, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And that's why here in verse 1, he's referred to as the son of David. And that's an important aspect of the book of Matthew. Because Matthew is revealing to his Jewish audience that Jesus is the King of Israel, that He is the Son of David. That term, Son of David, appears ten times throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Whereas the other three Gospels combined only have that title, Son of David, seven times. So you have it ten times in Matthew and seven times in the other three Gospels. Son of David shows how Jesus is fulfilling All the promises that God made to David. The Davidic covenant, if you would, right? How there would be a king ruling and reigning from the lineage of David till the end of time. And we saw that in the book of Revelation. Next, at the end of verse 1, he says, the son of Abraham. And not only does Jesus fulfill the Davidic covenant, but he fulfills the covenant that God made with Abraham. That he would have as many descendants as sand on earth and as stars in the sky. That through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's through the person of Jesus Christ. The key verse in the book of Matthew for us, there's right over a thousand verses we could look at. But in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, and we'll look at this more in depth in the coming weeks. But Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 The angel's telling Mary, and she will bring forth a son. Sorry, he's telling Joseph, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. What's the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew? What's the purpose of Jesus coming to earth? To save his people from their sins. Again, Jesus and Christianity, it's not a self help book or guide. Jesus didn't come to give us the 10 points to live the best life ever. Jesus didn't come to this earth to give us the white picket fence or the perfect 401k. Jesus didn't come to establish America as the greatest nation in the world. Jesus didn't come for us to give up all our money and be poor. Jesus didn't come for any of those things. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And that's the gospel that we need to preach. If we're preaching any other gospel, we have it twisted and we're preaching, as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John would say, a false gospel. We are all sinners in need of a Savior, and the only Savior, the only way to God, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Now some differences here within the four Gospels. In verse 22 of chapter 1, we saw that all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord. Again, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and trying to show them how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophecies. The key word in the Gospel of Matthew is that word fulfilled. Fulfilled. We'll see it 15 times throughout the book of Matthew. And time and time again, there'll be different wording, but it'll talk about how Jesus fulfills what the prophet Isaiah said or the prophet Jeremiah said or David in the Psalms. And Jesus is fulfilling the idea and the prophecies of this coming Messiah, this coming Savior, this King of King and Lord of Lords. Matthew quotes over 128 verses from the Old Testament Revealing to us that Jesus is the prophesied King of Israel. Mark, his key word is the word immediately. Immediately. right? Some of the people here, maybe your favorite type of movie is an action movie. You don't care that much about the plot, right? Good guy has bad guy do something mean to him. And then good guy destroys all the bad guys, right? And that's a good enough plot for you. Mark, in a sense, is the action movie within the Gospels, and it shows us the different actions, the different miracles, and the different movement that Jesus would be doing throughout his 33 years here in this world. The key word is immediately, and the Gospel of Mark is written for a Roman audience, and instead of Jesus being revealed as the King of God or the King of Jews from Matthew, Mark is bringing Jesus to the surface as being the servant of God. And how we sung about that this morning, right, in the worship set. We sung how he's our king, he's our servant, he's he's a servant of God. We're to follow him, we're to serve him, and he's the king, he's the savior of the world. Next is the Gospel of Luke. The key words for the Gospel of Luke are son of man. The son of man. And in the Gospel of Luke, it's written towards a Greek audience. It's written towards Greeks. And it's showing the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. Luke is bringing to the surface how Jesus is the perfect man. He's the perfect man. And it's important for us to know. Well, you guys know it. The wages of sin is? The wages of sin is death. And that's not just one death as we know it. That's not the 5 seconds or the 10 seconds, right? When the beep, 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 right? That's not what he's talking about there. He's talking about an eternal death. Our sins, what they have caused and what they've brought is an eternal death. And the only way that we can be saved or freed from this eternal death, the only way we could balance the scales of it, if you would, is if we had an eternal sacrifice to take place of the eternal death that we deserve. And that's why the perfect man, the third person of the Godhead, right? Jesus Christ, he's our sacrifice. And he's the perfect man. He's an eternal man. And that's why he's the only one that could save us from the eternal weight of our sins and wages of our sin, which is eternal death. Jesus is the only way to heaven. Finally, the Gospel of John, it's different from the other three Gospels. If you read through the Gospels with us, right, maybe you went through Matthew, then you went through Mark, and you're like, hey, this is the same thing over again, right? Then you go through Luke, it's the same thing over again. John is different from the other three Gospels. And John is written to a worldwide audience. The Gospel of John is written for the whole world in mind. And the key word in the Gospel of John is the word believe. That we have to believe that Jesus is God. And John brings to the surface the deity of Jesus Christ. How he's not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher or a good rabbi or a good man. But he is the Son of God. That's why John starts off in chapter 1 how Jesus existed before there was time. How the Word then became flesh and the Word dwelt among us. The Gospel of Matthew highlights what Jesus said. Mark highlights what Jesus did. Luke highlights what Jesus felt. And John highlights who Jesus was. Matthew is going to focus on the teachings of Jesus Christ. We're going to look later on the, the three huge portions of scriptures that are just one sermon. One, two, three, four hour sermon. I hope you guys had lunch beforehand. We'll practice that right now and see who, who stays awake for four hours. No, right? But the different sermons, it's just Jesus going for hours and hours and hours. Again, interesting in Jewish culture, the teacher would sit down and all the students would be standing up listening. But Matthew, he focuses on the teachings of Jesus and what he said. Mark will focus on the miracles and the actions of Jesus and what he did. Luke focuses on the compassion and humanity of Jesus and what he felt. And John focuses on how Jesus was fully God and fully human. Who Jesus was. That's what John focuses on. And again, these Gospels and these different camera angles, these different instruments, these different angles, it's God's inspired view on the life, ministry, and purpose of Jesus Christ here on earth for those 33 years. It gives us the only correct view of what Jesus did and accomplished here in His life on earth. We have to be very careful Jesus is not a fictional character that we can rehash to fit our needs or our desires or our wants. We can't adapt Jesus to our culture and make him fit into where we're at today in 2022. Jesus, he's a historical character. He's existed and we've had these four different gospels to show us the different angles and the full picture of Jesus and his earthly ministry. If you want to go even deeper than that, then you have the full CAT scan of who Jesus is. And the way you get that full CAT scan is you go from Genesis to Revelation over and over again. And then you can see everything that makes God tick, that makes Jesus tick, and makes the Holy Spirit tick. We have to be careful with this. We live in a day and age where it seems like Hollywood is going through a crisis, right? They just keep rebooting the same movies and the same ideas over and over and over again, right? Harrison Ford, he's back at it again, right? He's, there. he's got to pick up the hat, got to pick up the whip again, and he's Indiana Jones again and again. But what will happen sooner or later is they will reboot that same character, right? They'll probably change it from a man to a woman. That's what Hollywood's doing in this time and age. And they'll change the character and they'll reboot it. They'll reboot it to fit what they think the audience wants. We're not to do that with Jesus. Jesus is who he is and the gospel shows us who he is. So we have to be careful. We can take Jesus and we can make him fit our love for American freedom. We could take Jesus and make him fit our love and desire for excellence and money and gold and being a king and princes and princesses. We could take Jesus and make it mean that everybody sells everything they have and we live in a a communal compound, Right? That's why we need to read all the Gospels and get the full picture of who Jesus is and not reboot Him for our own desires. That's why the Gospels are so important. It protects us and the rest of the world from contradicting the person, the work, and the purpose of Jesus Christ. And if there's a different Jesus that we have in mind, and if He contradicts Scripture, then we have a huge problem. 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John point out that if there's specific fallacies in our belief of Jesus Christ, you are believing a false Jesus altogether. And only the real Jesus gets us to heaven for all of eternity. If we're following a false Jesus or a Jesus that we need to add more works to our salvation or a Jesus that adds to the real Jesus, we have to be so careful with that. Perhaps you're very wise here and you can gather that the author of Matthew, his name is Matthew. You guys are brilliant, right? Matthew, he's the author of Matthew and we can go to Matthew chapter 9. And here Matthew writes out his meeting with Jesus and his conversion, his life change in Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 through 13. It tells us, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him. And his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher, your rabbi, eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Mark chapter 2 verse 14, again another angle, another lens of the same story. In Mark chapter 2 verse 14, Mark reveals to us that Matthew's original name was Levi and his father's name was Alpheus. Mark chapter 2 verse 14, he says that he saw Levi, the son of Alpheus. And it's interesting, it's conjecture, we don't see it fully in scripture, but Matthew's birth name, right, the name given to him from his mom and dad was more than likely Levi. Perhaps he was even from the tribe of Levi. Perhaps his father and mother giving born to this baby boy were hoping and desiring that their son would partake of what was going on in the temple. And that he would be a priest or maybe a Pharisee when he grew up or a Sadducee. But instead, where is Matthew sitting when Jesus finds him? In the tax office. He's working for the IRS, right? That's who he's working for. I don't know how many kids in kids ministry. Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? I want to work for the IRS, right? I don't know how many kids are having that desire, So something happened at some point in Matthew's life where instead of serving God in the temple, he begins to work in the IRS office. And if that's your job, again, no harm, no foul. But in this day and age, what was happening in this tax office is that the land of Israel was overruled by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire would hand out certain portions of land in Israel to senators And then those senators would have men in the tax office collecting the taxes. So how it would work is you'd go to pay your taxes and you'd have to pay your taxes three times over. First, it'd be the man working at the tax office. He'd charge you your taxes and then a little extra for his pocket. And you couldn't do anything because there's a Roman soldier right next to him where if you don't pay, you go to jail, right? So you'd have to pay his extra tax. After that tax collector collects his his tax then he would give that money to the senator and that senator would collect his tax and then the tax after that would go to the Roman Empire. So each Jew would be being taxed three times over. Percentage on top of percentage on top of percentage. And now Matthew perhaps being a Levi this would be a total stab in the back of his people. Total stab in the back of his people. Imagine if you would, right? China takes over the United States of America, and one day someone comes knocking on your door, and you got to give your certain tax, and they overtax you like crazy. And who's knocking on the door? Hey, that's Pastor Zach. What is he doing here, right? <laughs> hey, man, I got to survive, so I'm working for the CPP now, right? And I got I to pay for my family, so you got to give me 50% of what you got. I, I hope there'd be some anger there. This guy was teaching and now he's here collecting extra taxes for the man and for the evil and for the communist. Again, that's how the Israelites would see. That's how the Jewish people would see Matthew. William Barclay says, We know that he was a tax gatherer and that he must therefore have been a bitterly hated man. For the Jews hated the members of their own race who had entered the civil service of their conquerors. Again, they would see Matthew as a traitor. A traitor. We also see tax collectors in the Gospels are often grouped together with, another word, sinners. The idea of sinners, yes, we're all sinners. It's the only prerequisite to getting saved is that you're a sinner. So hey, you could all get saved here, right? We're all sinners. We're still a group of sinners, right? We're growing. We're saints. We're growing in that. We're not sinless. We're not perfect. But hopefully each of us were sinning less and less each day, being convicted of more and more. But the grouping of tax collectors and sinners reveals to us how the Jewish people saw these tax collectors. They saw them no different than the drug addict. They saw them no different than the drunkard. They saw them no different than the prostitute. And this was the group of people having to hang out together because the Jewish people and the religious Jews would look down and scoff at these people, seeing them as a lower life form as you would. But Matthew, right, Levi, he had a pretty cushy job, right? He'd be protected by the Roman Empire, kind of a big deal. He made more money than any of the Jewish people around him. So he was protected. He had money. Probably had a good 401k, right? Good retirement. He had the life. And all Jesus tells him there in verse 9 is, Follow me. And he arose and he followed him. In Luke chapter 5, again another angle, another lens of this same story. Luke chapter 5 verse 27. And we're taking some time to settle in here and learn about our author and look At our own lives as well. We could be thinking of our conversion. Hopefully you're here and you've been converted. You've gone from death to life. You're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So we can look at how this affected Matthew. But in Luke chapter 5 verse 27. It tells us after these things he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Sitting at the tax office. And he said to him. Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Again, Levi had all the world had to offer. A cushy job, protection, safety, and comfort. And yet a traveling rabbi who had no home, No pillow, no bed, tells him, follow me. He leaves everything. The job, the 401k, the protection from the Roman government, his house, and he begins to follow Jesus. Again, to put that in perspective, imagine you're sitting on an intersection in Miami, right? And you see a gentleman there with a cardboard sign, beard, looks a little dirty, and it says, follow me, right? And he knocks on your window. And he just walks away, and you just... Put the car in park and you get out of your car and you start following him down the block, right? That's what that would look like. He's leaving everything to follow this traveling rabbi. Now, no doubt he probably heard of Jesus. Maybe he was in the shadows listening to the teachings. But Matthew in that instance, or Levi in that instance, gave up everything. He had to do some math in his mind and decide what was the better decision. What was the better life to follow? In Hebrews chapter 11, one of my favorite portions of scripture, we see Moses had to do the same math. And Moses, he had to make a similar decision. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, let's turn there quickly. Too good of a portion of scripture not to go to. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 It tells us, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Matthew had to make the math and the decision. Moses had to do the math and the decision. Either I can enjoy the passing pleasures of sin and enjoy the treasures in Egypt, or I can enjoy the affliction with God's people and the reproach of Christ and decide which is the greater reward. And that's a decision each of us have to come to. Would we rather continue to enjoy this life and the sin in this life and the so-called freedom in this life and the vices and the sin and the addictions in this life? Or would we rather follow Jesus Christ day in and day out? But we realize Matthew, he couldn't hold on to both lifestyles. He had to leave all and follow him. Have we done that this morning? Has there been a cost in our conversion? What has your conversion costed you? For Matthew, it costed him everything. Has it cost us friendships? Relationships? Perhaps our social status at work or with friends? What has your conversion costed you? Because any great relationship comes with sacrifice. Any great relationship comes with a sacrifice. Some of the dads were talking in the back. One of them was tired. He says, man, my kid is uh, having a rough night. My wife is tired. She's sick. And he, you could tell his sacrifice yesterday was sleep, right? And he had sacrificed sleep. Yet if you'd ask him, hey, do you want sleep and give up your child? Or do you want to keep your child and give up sleep, right? Any loving dad would say, yep, got to give the sleep, right? Got to give up the sleep. Any relationship that we care about and where true love is at, there's going to be sacrifice. In this season as a church, again, a lot of marriages. We had a a wedding yesterday, another wedding coming up. And some of the guys are joking about how their calendar looked before they got engaged and after they got engaged, right? And for the relationship, what was sacrificed? Free time and ease, right? Being able to sit home and kick back. Uh, when I first got married I would laugh with Manny and when I first got married I had a beautiful saltwater fish tank saltwater fishes LED lights corals and Manny came over the house and he just sat there he goes I remember when I had a saltwater fish tank right (laughs) and it's not that your wife comes and says sacrifice to me right The, the saltwater fish tank but what happens more responsibility less time more work, more responsibility, and it's a joy to sacrifice these things. What have you sacrificed in your relationship with Jesus Christ? And if there's nothing that comes to mind, some warning should be happening in our heart. We see from Matthew, he left everything everything, and went to follow Jesus. We see from Moses, he left everything. Being the most powerful man in the world, being the richest man in the world, having all the power and all the riches of Egypt, he left all of that to go wander in the wilderness with a bunch of complainers for 40 years, right? And he said, that's better. That's better because there's the reward at the end of the day. He left all, rose up, and followed him. So first we see the sacrifice that should be happening in our relationship and our conversion in Jesus Christ. Now what's the next thing we see? After he leaves all and follows Jesus, the next thing he does is he gives Jesus a great feast in his house. And does he have the feast just with Jesus all by himself? No. He invites his tax collector buddies and all the other sinners Maybe Levi, maybe Matthew, right? He was the party house. And people would go there. They knew he would throw a huge party. They knew he had money. They knew he had Roman protection. And he would throw these extravagant parties. And he doesn't just ghost all of his old friends. He doesn't act as a double agent. He's one person with his friends and then another person when he's Jesus. But instead he decides to have both worlds collide in his own home. It's not just that we get saved and that we keep our salvation to ourselves. We're to be saved and preach the gospel. Are we bringing our friends, our family members, our co-workers in view and in a meal, right? With Jesus Christ. Are we introducing them to the person of Jesus Christ? Again, to be a fly on the wall of that house, right? Jesus and his disciples there with a bunch of tax collectors... And sinners, and drunkards, and right women—all there at the same time. Are we bringing that aspect into our lives, or are we just fearful? Are we afraid of Jesus? Are we ashamed of Jesus, or are we bringing him into our family, our meals, our friendships? Right, Josh last week he was talking about how no wife here would take a husband saying. Honey, I'm just ashamed of you, right? I, I just go out there and at work there's all these other girls and I don't want to make them feel bad, so I just don't want to talk that, that you and me were a thing, right? I don't want to hurt their feelings or make them feel weird, right? No wife hopefully is down with that or okay with that. And yet with our relationship with Jesus, there's almost this shame of bringing him up or bringing him to light, where if he's our chief love, he's going to just naturally come to the light. So we see the cost of the conversion of Levi. And then it's interesting, I failed to mention, the name Matthew means gift from God. Gift from God. Now IRS agents, I don't know if they're known for giving gifts, right? Usually they give bills. That's what they give, right? But now he goes from being Levi to now being Matthew, which is gift from God. And how Jesus, he does that. He changes the names of his disciples And each of us, when we come to Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And Jesus points to this in Matthew chapter 9 when he now speaks to the Pharisees. Jesus butts into the conversation, right? Pharisees are trying to bully his disciples. And then Jesus steps in and he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, that's the goal of Jesus Christ. That's His aim. That's His mission. But we have to realize this. He did not come to call sinners to comfort, or sinners to coddling, or sinners to, it's okay, we understand. No. He says, I've come to call sinners to repentance. That we are to come to Jesus Christ and not just hold on to our sin and make reasons or excuses for them. We are to come to Jesus Christ and repent. My life is wrong and I need to repent. Jesus, if you're willing to take me and use me, Lord, I'm willing to lay it all down, leave it all and follow you. Have we repented? There's no holding on to both lifestyles thinking we can gain entrance into heaven. right? Jesus says, If you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross daily and follow me. That's pick up your electric chair daily and follow me. Pick up the gallows daily and follow me. And what we're putting to death is our emotions, our desires, our feelings. We're putting to death the temptations that rise up within us. We're putting to death the ideas that this world tries to force and squeeze us into the mold. We're trying to put to death Satan and his temptation and his trying to attack us and get to us. All of that is to be put to death to the truth of who our master is and what does his word say. That's what it means to follow him. That's what it means to repent. Too often today people think that Jesus has come to be the best self-help guru ever, right? That if I continue to just grow in discipline, I'll be a better Christian, right? If I just continue to grow and I work on these things, I'll be better and better, best dad ever, best this better. We should be getting better and better. But we only get better when we're plugged into the person of Jesus Christ. And the more time we spend with Jesus Christ, the more we're abiding in Him, the more we abide in Him, the more we can bear fruit. And it's beautiful because Jesus doesn't take Levi or Matthew this tax collector and now ask him to be someone completely different in what he's good at or what he's doing because running numbers in and of itself is not sinful right there are certain things that you can't do as a believer if you are a really really good drug lord as an unbeliever you can't get saved and stay being a really really good drug lord right it doesn't work that way there are certain things that they just can't be holy However, for Matthew, William Barclay puts it this way: as a former tax collector, Levi or Matthew was qualified to write an account of Jesus' life and teaching. A tax collector of that day must know Greek and be literate and a well-organized man. Something that Matthew was the recorder among the disciples and that he took notes of Jesus' teachings. We must say that when Matthew followed Jesus, he left everything behind except his pen and paper. Matthew nobly used his literary skills to become the first man ever to compile an account of the teachings of Jesus Christ. What are you good at? What are your skills? Are you just using that for your own personal gain, for your own Instagram fame, right, or anything like that? Or are you using those skills To glorify Jesus and his kingdom. Are you using those skills just for your own pocket and your own bank account? Or are you using it to bless God's people? Are those skills only being used to make your boss rich? Or are those skills being used to glorify and honor God? There's two other rich men that come to mind in Matthew's conversion. The next man, he's a little guy, right? Also a tax collector. Seems like Jesus likes calling tax collectors, right? Zacchaeus. A wee little man. A wee little man was he, right? Maybe you have the song playing in your ear. And Jesus tells Levi, tells Matthew, follow me. Two words. He leaves everything and he follows him. For Zacchaeus, Jesus' words to him were different. He tells him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today I must stay at your house. Again, a completely different calling. But look at how the conversion cuts Zacchaeus to the heart in Luke chapter 19 verse 8 it says that Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord Lord look I give half of my goods to the poor and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation I restore fourfold and Jesus said to him today salvation has come to this house Because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Two men. Two tax collectors. Different callings and different ways that calling was worked out. For Levi, he left his job. Left his home. Left everything and followed Jesus Christ. For Zacchaeus, he just paid back what he owed. And he stopped living the life of a crooked IRS agent. That's what Zacchaeus did. And maybe that's your calling from the Lord today. You see, today we do. We need more pastors and teachers. We need more good pastors and teachers, right? More people that actually care about people and love people and want to honor God. And maybe you're here today and God is calling you to take a step of faith, leave everything behind, and follow Him. That may be some of you here. Miami needs more Bible-based churches, right? Right? Perhaps you're here and what Jesus is calling you to do is, hey, stop fudging the numbers at work. Stop putting, doing deals under the table. Stop having certain language at church and certain language in your house and certain language out in the workforce. Perhaps that's what Jesus is calling you today. And notice how Jesus, he calls each man different. To Levi, follow me. To Zacchaeus, make haste, come down. For today I must stay at your house. We have to be careful. So often we like to compare. And we see, what I've given up for Christ. And I look at someone else and I say, how come they haven't given up as much as me, right? And what creeps in? Pride. And automatically our assumption is I'm holier than they are. That's, That's the only logical conclusion to this, right? However, Jesus has a specific calling to each individual. Again, it would make no sense if Jesus would go to Levi, hey, make haste. Come down from that tree, I'm going to your house today. As Levi is sitting in his office looking around saying, what's wrong with this rabbi, right? What do you mean get down from a tree? I'm not in any tree. And for each of us, Jesus has a specific calling for you. Maybe a specific price or cost that he's asking, hey, are you willing to give this? Are you willing to give this up to follow me? A third rich man comes to mind in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. We know this man as the rich young ruler. The Gospels say that he's a lawyer, not a lawyer how we think today in civil court dealing with the laws of the land. But he was a lawyer when it came to Jewish laws, Jewish culture, Jewish rules and regulations. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, again, a different calling here. Jesus tells him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, this young man, he had to do the same math That Moses did, that Levi did, and that Zacchaeus did. Except, sadly, he came out to the wrong conclusion. And I hope and pray none of us here were coming out to the wrong conclusion. That our stuff is more important, our relationships are more important, our social status is more important, our freedoms are more important than our walk and relationship with Jesus Christ. To the rich young ruler, his math deducted that his possessions were more important and greater than following Jesus Christ. You see, our relationship with Jesus, it's sacrifice each and every day. Pick up your cross and follow me. What are we sacrificing? Not once, yeah, I remember back in my day 10 years ago, I did this for the Lord. No, it's each day. Does a marriage work out well when the husband's just talking about the great sacrifice 10 years ago? Wives, does that work out well? doesn't work out well, right? It's daily sacrificing. Lord, I'm going to give you some more free time today. Lord, it's not even my free time. Lord, I'm going to give you more time today. Lord, instead of watching the game, Lord, I'm going to spend time with you. Lord, instead of saving this money and buying this toy that I don't really need, Lord, I'm going to donate it or I'm going to go on this retreat. Our walk with Christ, Romans chapter 12, what does it say? We are to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So it's not just sacrificing once when we get saved, but it's sacrifice over and over and over again. And just like any sensible mom or dad would more than willingly give up those sacrifices, just like any wise husband would willingly give up the fish tank for the wife and kids, right? In our walk and relationship with Christ, these sacrifices are really not that big of a deal. Especially when you pan out and you realize everything we give to Christ, we're rewarded in heaven. So at the end of the day, it's not really a sacrifice, it's an investment. And we're making these investments today that we're going to reap when we see Him face to face. Now, some notable scriptures. In the book of Matthew, we talked about the different sermons that Matthew would write and scribe down. You have the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, 6, and 7. And I encourage you, read through the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over again. Not only are we American citizens, or if you're a citizen from another nation, you're a citizen from there, right? But if we're saved, we are citizens of heaven. And in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus shows us how servants and citizens of heaven and of His kingdom, how we should be living how we should be acting, what we should be thinking about, what our goals and desires should be. That's the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7. Next notable thing that we find in the Gospel of Matthew are the parables. There's a lot of parables in the book of Matthew. Parables, they're analogies or allegories that Jesus uses real world events and stories and things that are happening and it's hiding a heavenly meaning. And Jesus would do this to bring to the surface those who are humble and really desire more of Jesus Christ. And those who were prideful and were just looking for a reason to complain and moan and whine and walk away. Because the key difference between the followers of Jesus and the Pharisees is that the followers of Jesus, after Jesus would give a parable, they would wait around and say, what does it mean, right? What does that mean? What what did you mean by this? That's the key difference in followers of Jesus. We continue to press in and say, Lord, what does this mean? Lord, what does this mean? Lord, what does this mean? You find those parables in chapter 13, chapter 18, chapter 20, 21, 22, 24, and 25, filled with parables. Then in chapter 24 and 25, we see the Olivet Discourse. Again, one large sermon where Jesus is talking about the end of the age. We looked a lot back and forth as we were going through the book of Revelation throughout chapter 24 and 25 of the Gospel of Matthew. Finally, notable scripture in the book of Matthew. We turn to chapter 28. As God would have it fit, this is exactly what Pastor Josh taught on last week. And that's the Great Commission. Again, we're not to be saved just so that we can live comfortable, easy lives. We're to be saved to then go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. We see Matthew, he lived this out. He got saved, Then he invited his tax collector friends, his sinner friends, Jesus and the disciples all to one meal. The theme of the Gospel of Matthew, we mentioned it, is that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king, not only the king of the Jews, not only the king of the Old Testament and New Testament, but he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we either bow down today and say you are king and I'm going to follow you and serve you willingly or one day, At the end of the age, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We will borrow the outline from Dr. J. Vernon McGee. You don't have to write this down. You can if you're a student of the Bible or we'll put them later on on the website. But the outline that Dr. J. Vernon McGee puts for the book of Matthew is a six-point outline. First is the person of the king. That's found in chapters 1 and 2. The person of the king. Chapter 1 goes through the genealogy of Jesus Christ through his adoptive father Joseph, which is the kingly genealogy and lineage. It records the virgin birth, the visit of the wise men, the flight to Egypt, and the return to Nazareth. Again, the upbringing and the person of the king. Second is the preparation of the king. That's on in chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 16. And we see how Jesus was prepared for his earthly ministry. First, in chapter 3, he's baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptizes him. He's the forerunner, talking about one day there's going to be one who's so holy, so special, so amazing. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. He then baptizes him and announces that Jesus is here. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. What's the goal of Matthew, right, Jesus? That he'd save his people from their sins. Behold the Lamb of God. Then in chapter 4, in this preparation of the king, how is Jesus prepared for ministry? Temptation. We don't like that word, right? The way he's prepared for ministry is by the Holy Spirit leading him to the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. And temptations and trials, God is not the one that conducts the trial and the tribulation. God allows the enemy to do the trial and the tribulation and it brings to the surface who we really are. I don't know if you've ever gone a day and you're thinking, man, I got a hold of this Christianity thing, right? I'm really growing, I'm really maturing, I'm really sanctified. And you're walking and you stub your toe on the doorframe of the bed, right? Right? And all of a sudden, you got a trial to see how far is that sanctification, right? (laughs) The words that come out, are they sanctified words or not sanctified words, right? And different trials, different tribulations, whether it's stubbing your toe, to some of the people, right, more serious trials that we're praying about, people with their health, people with cancer, what's worse than you being sick, your kids being sick, right? And these trials and tribulations reveal to us where we're at with the Lord, it also allows us to bring more glory and honor to God. They, they do so much, right? Third point of this outline is the propaganda of the king. In chapter 14, verse 17, through chapter 9, verse 35, we see the, the goal of Jesus. What is he trying to teach through the, the Mount of Beatitudes? He's trying to teach how this kingdom is, has totally different mindset, Totally different rules. You think sin is just what you do outwardly. Sin, it's in our heart. It's in our minds. And Jesus is trying to get the world to see that we are all sinners. We are all sinners. There's not a scale of sinners. There's sinners and there's holy. And there's nothing in between. Last Monday night, uh, Pastor Josh, he had a great message on taking the plank out of our own eye. So we can address the specks in our brother's and sister's eye. And he had one person line up on one end. He says, hey, this guy represents Jesus Christ. He's here on this side of the spectrum. This guy on this side, he represents Hitler, right? And all the evil, all the atrocities of Hitler. And now he says, where do you think Paul the Apostle, who is he more like? We're all sinners. We're all on Hitler's side, right? We're all sinners desperately in need of a Savior, There's only one holy being and that's God. There's only one creator and everything else is creation. Only one being who has created and is the only creator and everything else is creation. You see, the very same fallacy in the Pharisees, them saying, what are you doing eating with sinners and tax collectors, it creeps into our heart as believers. And we're looking down at other people. Oh, that person's a drunkard. That person's a druggie. That person's still struggling with pornography. Look at me. I'm way holier than that to struggle with those things. Pharisee. We're all sinners. When we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, it's sin. And we are separate from a holy God desperately in need of a Savior. Fourth point is the program of the king. It's in chapters 9, verse 36, through chapter 16, verse 20. We see Jesus is constantly showing the disciples, hey, this is the program, guys. Get with the program. This is our goal. This is what we do. This is what we're about. Fifth point is the passion of the king. That's in chapter 16, verse 21, through 27, verse 66. So much of the Gospels is focusing on the last week of the life of Jesus Christ here on earth. So much of the Gospels, right? Over 10 chapters of the book of Matthew is just on that last week of Jesus' life here on earth. And finally, the sixth point in the outline is the power of the King. Matthew chapter 28, how Jesus is able to resurrect Defeat sin, defeat death, and be the trailblazer for each of us to be able to defeat sin and death as well. But it's only if we die with Jesus that we'll be able to rise and resurrect with Him as well. So again, what was that key scripture in Matthew? Chapter 1, verse 21. She will bring forth a son, you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And I need saving, right? I don't know about you, every day I need saving from my sins. May we cry out to Jesus. May we press into Jesus. May we be abiding with Jesus more and more because we are in desperate need for a Savior. So in closing, what should we come away with? All the academics, the outline. No, my my goal is that we would be leaving here with what has been the price of my conversion? What have I sacrificed? What am I giving up for the Lord? Have I given anything up to him? Am I still going on the glory days of 10 years ago, what I did for him? Yeah, I served as a youth leader 10 years ago. Yeah, I gave my life in Dulos or in camp 10 years ago. What am I sacrificing for him today? Am I creeping into living in being a, a secret agent for Jesus Christ? Or am I bringing my unsaved friends, my saved friends and Jesus Christ all together in the same meal and in the same table? So worship team, if you can come up, Hey, let's all stand. We'll close in song. If you need prayer, there'll be pastors up front. If you've never prayed that prayer to ask Jesus to come into your heart and forgive you of your sins, I encourage you, come up front and pray with one of the pastors. So Lord, we just love you. And Lord, thank you. Thank you that you've come to save sinners, Lord. Thank you that you've made the way for salvation. You've made the way where we can taste of what true love is we can taste of what we were created for, what we were meant for, Lord. We can taste of what our purpose is in this life, Lord. And Lord, I pray if anyone here, and Lord, they're depressed, God. Lord, they're just at the bottom of the valley, Lord. Perhaps they, they have it planned out, Lord. They're thinking about how they're going to end it all, Lord. I pray that they'd cry out to you today, Lord. That they would realize you're here to save them today, Right now, this very afternoon, how you love them and you care for them. You created them and knitted them in their mother's womb, Lord. And you're a God that sees, you're the God that knows, and you're the God that is calling them to you right here and right now, Lord. I pray each of us, Lord, help us to abide with you more and more each day. Lord, help us to truly believe and know that apart from you, I can do nothing, Lord. So, Jesus, we just are grateful for you. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the patience that you have for us, Lord. And, Lord, just help us to grow in this sanctification process today, God. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.